It's a mean world out there. And it's a mean rage. Let's change the culture. Let's change the way we think about this world. Let's have a hell of a time doing it. Welcome to Mean Age Daydream, a home for comedy, a home for some politics, and a daydream of a world that doesn't suck. I'm Brian McWilliams. Welcome to this man world. Welcome, everybody, to Mean Age Daydream, the best show on the interwebs, and of course, a place where we hate with positivity. Welcome to the show, guys. I am Brian McWilliams, your favorite person in the world. And uh, today, I've got a great guest on. Brent Hamachek's going to be joining me for the second half of the show. He has a great uh, great program he's doing on college campuses, basically bringing two different sides together, of course, that always being the left and the right, and trying to actually have a shocking Shocking development on college campuses. Yes, an actual dialogue between them where they try to solve problems rather than just debating each other. And Brent's got some really funny stories about just how difficult getting that process was and all of the machinations behind the scenes in the academic world to try to put a stop to people just getting together to talk. So make sure to stick around for that second half of the show. But at the top of the show, guys, I want to tell you about a, uh, a interesting organization that I think you're going to love. At least if you love Buck Johnson, and I love Buck Johnson. I think you've heard of Counterflow, his fantastic show where Buck talks about uh, here, there, and everywhere from music to politics. But he is going to be running for city council. And he's working with a new PAC called the Mises Mayors PAC. Now, Mises Mayors is formerly known as Mises GOP. They're raising money to support Buck for city council, but not stopping there. Their idea is to basically pool a lot of money to not only support Buck and what he's doing, but also other candidates down the road. Now, Mises Mayors works to put Misesian men in office who will fight back against the Great Reset, push local policies such as um, contractually obligating cops to protect their citizens, and passing town charter amendments stating that the government gets its legitimacy from property owners. I think this pact's got a great strategy. I'm excited to see what they're going to do. Basically, they're taking it out of HAPA. So check them out, guys. You can go to MisesGOP.org forward slash Lions. Again, they're called Mises Mayors now, but it's Mises GOP originally. So MisesGOP.org forward slash Lions. Go ahead. All the money there is going toward raising, uh, or I'm sorry, going towards electing officials. Not a cent is going to pay the PAC uh, leadership committees like other PACs do. So check them out. That policy is not going to change. All the money that you donate will go to candidates like Buck Johnson. So again, MisesGOP.org forward slash Lions. Uh, go toss them some bucks. I know I already have, and we'll see what, uh, we'll see what plays out. Exciting times. Okay, so top of the show. I hope everybody out there is staying monkeypox free. I know monkeypox is ravaging through predominantly the gay community, and uh, we're not allowed to talk about, um, you know, staying away from gay orgies. We're not allowed to be like, you know what? Put that thing away for a couple days, gentlemen. Let's let this cool down. This monkeypox situation cool down. We're not allowed to talk about any of that. That's bigoted. <laughs> we can't, can't make a common sense recommendation. No more gay orgies right now. But... I saw that they uh, they have actually now confirmed the first transmission of monkeypox to a dog. And this is not a joke. Well, a joke's coming, but this is not a joke. First dog has contracted monkeypox, presumably from its owners, and this is over in France. Now, it's a straight couple, a straight Parisian couple. I don't know if you could live in Paris and be totally straight, but Parisian couple, somehow their dog has contracted monkeypox. 
To which I joked on Twitter, at Brian McWilliams, that that's a tough way to come out to your wife. <laughs> honey, uh, the, honey, the dog, the dog seems to have many sores. Uh, uh, I do not know how to tell you. I have been frequenting the bathhouses. Uh, oh, oh, sacre bleu. You know, <laughs> that's a hard way to come out. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. But who knows how these people got it? I don't want to presume, but uh, poor dog. And, uh, you know, hopefully the dog just got it from petting. We'll just leave it at that. But uh, I also saw that now the World Health Organization is moving to change the name of monkeypox. And I've heard various explanations for this. Uh, some that it, it it's somehow racist uh, to reference it, which seems ridiculous. The one that I liked the best was that calling it monkeypox, even though everybody can get it now, even dogs, that was disparaging to monkeys. And I'm not making that up. That was literally, they're trying to say that, well, we don't want to stigmatize monkeys because clearly the monkeys will be very offended by this. And we don't want to upset the monkey packs out there. We don't want to upset, uh, obviously, a very core voting block of these political elites. So there you have it. But the other, the other topic I want to get into when we talk about global elites, when we talk about, uh, you know, we're <laughs> fighting back against the Great Reset, like with Mises Mayors, Mayors, what they're trying to do. When we talk about all of these multinational, basically organizations that have very little oversight from the common man. When you look at what happened with Brexit, that Brexit was primarily driven by the urge of people to get out from under the boot of an organization that they had not elected, that they had really no say over, no control over, that was dictating their taxes, what they could bring and bring in out of the country, how many you know, refugee immigrants they had to take in. All of these things led to a sense among the people in the UK that they had lost control of their own country. Now, the issues that arise from the United Nations, from the World Economic Forum, are many. And obviously, we're seeing them play out with COVID. We're seeing them play out with uh, food issues. We're seeing it play out with uh, energy issues and climate change issues. And obviously, these things we're being told are going to be the great saviors of the nations involved, right? That the climate change is going to, it's going to work out in the end, guys. Yes, you're going to have to suffer. Yes, you're not going to have gas to get through the winter. Yes, your, your gas and electric bills are going to be astronomically higher by 3,000%. But don't worry. Once we get this all figured out, it's going to be for the best. And in the meantime, you know, the Earth's uh, is subtly warmer. And that's apparently a bad thing, despite many, many articles written to the contrary, arguing that, in fact, global greening could be a great boon to all of us, especially when we talk about food. The greening of the Earth leads to more food production. Even areas of the Sahara Desert and other you know, very arid regions are, in fact, greening, allowing for more food production in areas that has been very difficult in the past that have had problems with starvation. Now, let's expand that, right? So we know that there's a war of the climate change. And as I said in my previous episode, talking about how every war is on the poor, well, there's a new war on the books that you may or may not have heard of. And I only came across it, well, for, for a couple reasons. Number one, if you've been watching what's going on in Sri Lanka, you've seen a government overthrown because of political woes and also food woes, farming woes. You're seeing in various nations, I think it's you know Denmark and Sweden, a lot of, a lot of tractors are blocking roads. You're seeing, and again, I can't remember exactly which Nordic nation it was, them dumping fertilizer by the hundreds of thousands of pounds, right? Because they're, again... There is a war on fertilizer right now by the United Nations dumping fertilizer at their parliament buildings to make a statement. 
because there is a movement within the United Nations. And again, I, I came across this looking at Sri Lanka, looking at these farmer protests. And I was like, what the hell is this all about? Well, according to Michael Schellenberger, who I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, former super progressive that had, had written several books now, one about how democratic policies have ruined a lot of these big cities. Another one on how the climate change issue has become politicized and basically is founded in nothing. And how the, the again, the benefits of a slightly warmer planet actually can be pretty powerful. But he's writing about this United Nations Environment Program, which describes itself as, quote, the global authority that sets the environmental agenda and serves as an authoritative advocate for the global environment. Now, the problem is that, as we know, when they talk about the global environment, they don't necessarily mean the global environment that's good for people. There tends to be the sentiment agreed on throughout the climate movement, throughout the environmentalist movement, that people are the enemy of the planet, right? That the two can't coincide. And in fact, people should have to suffer. People should die so that the earth can thrive. And the, all the other plants and animals and everything else, they obviously should be put ahead of people. I personally don't agree with that. I am a humanist in that I put people ahead of the environment in many, many factions, in many, many ways. Predominantly because I am a human. <laughs> I'm on team human, guys. And so is my daughter, my little toddler daughter. Don't want her dead. Team human all the way. But what they're doing is putting the environment first, putting all these things. And they argue that this is going to be for the benefit. They argue that they, we, again, we have to pay the price. The latest turn from this environmental organization under the United Nations is a war on fertilizer. And I mean that quite literally. The arguments being put forth based on nothing, by the way, that fertilizer and the nitrogen in fertilizer is such a great evil for the environment that it has to be stopped. That all of these nations that use fertilizer that has nitrogen in it, which leads to massive crop yields, allowing them to feed the populations, not only of their domestic areas, their domestic needs, but the worldwide population. And, and by the way, we're also seeing a surge in 25% more, you know, food, uh, not sustainably, uh, food scarcity issues crop up, right? So they're, pressuring to reduce fertilizer and that's what they big the big pressure on all these all these nations that are big breadbasket nations is to reduce their fertilizer usage by something like 70%, right? They're really pressuring them. Despite the fact that they've shown that you can reduce fertilizer yields and still produce just as many crops using nitrogen-based fertilizers. But again, we're told nitrogen-based fertilizers are evil. So, what's this leading to? Well, in the, in the specific case of Sri Lanka, and again, which has brought down, literally brought down a nation, the people were sold a false bill of goods. They were told that this nitrogen was evil for the environment. And on top of that, the candidate running for office, which they voted in, and let me find his name. Uh, let's see. Dialogue. President Rapan, I'm going to butcher this, Rajapaska. That is who they elected, Raja Pasca. He had run on a platform saying that he was, and literally on a platform of anti-fertilizer because the fear porn that had been pushed by the United Nations and by media, you know, big media outlets and by climate change activists is that these fertilizers are evil. So he ran on, I'm going to limit it. I'm going to rein it in. They elected him. He did. Cut it back massively. Limited how much could be used. Guess what happened? Crop yields straight into the garbage could not provide enough food, could not provide enough exports. The tea trade, which is huge in Sri Lanka, completely cratered. 
This causes massive economic uproar because they no longer have their food exports. They can no longer produce enough food for their internal needs. And that causes the riots you see. That causes them to oust their current president, to uprise again, overthrow their government as a direct result of the United Nations policy and pressuring people to rein in their use of fertilizer. Now, where this becomes more conspiracy theory, because this is fact, this has happened, this is what's happening throughout the developed world at the specific behest of the United Nations, where this can, we can go a little bit more conspiracy-wise is looking at the number of different fires we've had at production facilities for you know food processing, for meat processing, for grain processing. I can't say that these are distinctly related, but when you expand it to looking at how these people are attacking energy, how they think that it's a good thing that energy costs are skyrocketing, right? Isn't that what Biden's administration said about the energy costs? Oh, you know, Buddha judges out there. Well, this is a good thing. This is going to push people into more renewable fuels. We don't mind real high costs. Stephen Colbert is out there saying he doesn't mind paying $8 a gallon to, to fight Putin's war. Okay. <laughs> but add it all together. And you can see that this is a push towards the Great Reset. Again, starvation is key. I talked about it last episode, how the UN had on its page, which was pulled down once people found out about it, a specific article from somebody, I think it was from the University of Berkeley, California, Berkeley, talking about how starvation is a great manufacturer of production from the workforce. In fact, the best This is an article on the United Nations homepage. We're reading about them attacking fertilizer, impacting crop yields, trying to take down the production capacity of farmers, attacking their livelihood and attacking their ability to export import and making people starve. And at the same time, talking about the benefits of starvation and how your populace will be hardest working when they're starving because they know they have to work extra hard for every single calorie they consume. Coincidence? You tell me. It certainly doesn't seem like it. And you combine that with the global supply chain crises. You combine that with the attack on meat farming. You combine that with all of these production facilities somehow catching fire, 20 of them in a period of a couple months, and you have to wonder. You look at Bill Gates buying up all the massive farmland. Is Bill Gates the largest owner of farmland in the United States, by the way? Is he going to adopt this war on nitrogen fertilizer, I can all but guarantee you the answer to that is yes. Is this going to affect the ability for our children to eat uh, you know, basic staples, to get grain, to get wheat, to get food, to get whatever it might be? The crop yield is cratering, is going to come home to roost if this keeps going forward. And it's puzzling for a group which ostensibly is supposed to be for the human good, right? We're the United Nations. We all are coming together here for the greater good of humanity. And in the meantime, that greater good seems to be starving people and trying to limit our access to food. It certainly is terrifying, folks. It certainly is something to worry about. Anyway, that's the rant. That's the talk I wanted to give here moving into things. And uh, I know that wasn't too positive. I try to be positive on the show, but good news, the second half of the show all is very positive when we talk to Brent. Now, before I go to that, I want to tell you guys, don't forget to visit our sponsor, IP Vanish VPN. IP Vanish has been around for years. They've got the highest records and ratings from the, the uh, trust pilots. They've got thousands of views on there. 
Do not go on the internet without this. If you don't have something to protect you, if you don't have a VPN to protect your IP, to stop people from traveling around with you, advertisers, hackers, spyware, right? If you don't have this, you are messing up. And IPVanish gives you the ability, one click across all your different laptops, your phone, your Roku, whatever it might be, you can protect your IP. Not only can they not travel around and track you on the internet, but also it protects your physical location. Wink, if you know what I'm saying. So there are a lot of benefits. I know I do not go online without a VPN service. I don't know why you ever would either. And you can get 70% off by going to ipvanish.com forward slash lions. Comes out to about $3.20 a month. Impossible to beat. Again, ipvanish.com forward slash lions. All right, that's it. Let's get into my interview with Brent in just a minute. All right. So as promised for the second half of the show, I wanted to have a conversation with a man who I found is pretty, pretty damn interesting. Uh, and it's funny, we actually got hooked up here because I do public relations for a career in my day job uh, when I'm not fighting uh, libertarian superhero antics in my cape in the off season. But um, I had sent Brent a pitch about a client of mine and he responded with some uh, pretty fascinating insight into work that he's doing with a campus program to encourage civil discourse. And of course, my guest is Brent Hamachek, who's the executive editor of humanevents.com, which is a, a news and information website. And I encourage you all to check it out. So Brent, welcome to Mean Age Daydream. It is a pleasure to be here. You're right. Our meeting was a little fortuitous. You know, you get uh, get a lot of PR emails during the course of the day, and most of them, I glance at the the headline of it and delete them. And yours uh, yours intrigued me, and I read it, and I responded, and I'm glad I did. Here yeah, we well, it's funny. What what Brett's not telling you guys is that he uh, has probably deleted 700 of my other emails, but that's the PR game. <laughs> that's, it's the, possible. that's the nature I, of the I, beast. I beg forgiveness. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, Brett, I, you know, I mentioned uh, when we were just kind of doing a little pre-show rambling that I find your background. So for those of you that aren't watching on the video on YouTube or on Odyssey, uh, Brett's got some interesting posters in the background. I see uh, Ayn Rand is on one of them. I can't read the movie. I'm guessing it's probably Atlas Shrugged. You've got John Wayne and then Rambo's first blood poster in the background. <laughs> I'm loving right. it. Right. And if the if the camera were able to pan a bit, of course, not only would you see the spare bed that's in my office, but you'd also see Thomas Hobbes on the wall. Oh, so, yeah. uh, the Ayn Rand uh, poster is actually from the auto from the biographical movie that was done, A Sense of Life, mm. uh, which uh, back in the day, I drove all the way down into downtown Chicago to the Fine Arts Theater on a Saturday afternoon to sit and watch it all by myself with like six other people. And uh, anyway, so. Big Ayn Rand fan, um, love the notion of idealized characters. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Atlas Shrugged, everybody looks at it as a philosophical book and all those things. But uh, she actually described it as being a, a romance novel. And she described the idea, she created the ideal man and the ideal woman. And I think, you know, the, the other posters on my wall uh, suggest the fact that I'm a bit of a classic romantic because John Wayne's characters, John Rambo, these are, these are idealized men. These are the men that we all ought to want to be. And if we don't want to be, then we ought to check what kind of man we are in the first place. Yeah, that is, I, I'm with you there. There has been a 
not so subtle push to take away the masculinity from our society to right. make people feel bad for wanting to live up to this this aspiration of the man who does the right thing, the man that's a protector and a provider and will always step into the line of fire to protect others, his family, his yeah, you know, what his beliefs are. And there's without a doubt an attack on that. And you know, it's funny. I hadn't read The Fountainhead until somewhat recently, uh, just a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. by uh, by Rand. And it's funny that you said that Atlas Shrugged was a romance novel, or as she has described it, and that I also thought The Fountainhead was, in a way, a romance novel. And I thought of it to myself because it's got a lot of scenes that are. I guess, aggressive sexually uh, in the way in which the two characters interact. And I thought to myself, this is basically libertarian 50 shades of gray, but, you know, took place 40 (laughs) years ago. (laughs) Right. So, um, you know, interesting points about uh, that. The libertarian thing is kind of funny. So with Ayn Rand, the libertarian word gets tossed around because of her ideas about absolute uh, freedom. But uh, the truth is she didn't have much use for libertarians. And there's a really good reason for that. And it kind of relates to the Thomas Hobbes poster that's on my wall that you can't see. So libertarians argue that, you know, if uh, if we have a free society, that things will necessarily get better and that people will necessarily behave better. Rand believed none of that. Uh, She didn't put any stock at all in uh, the way that humans might behave or, or not behave. She simply said it was the only moral and ethical way to organize a societal structure. So you got two different people arguing for free markets, one saying because it's better, and the other one saying it's because it's ethical. And uh, because she didn't necessarily have any great faith in, in mankind, right? So, yeah. which is what we've seen play out. You know, Atlas Shrugged, written and published in, what, 57, um, kind of looks like we're living through it today right yeah and uh digital creations of a version of the valley right we have all these platforms being built where people can kind of come together and uh and hide their politics and stay away from the rest of the world so that they can just be and interact as being free seems to me that's what she was creating in the mountains of colorado yeah no i would agree with you there well that i guess actually ties us perfectly into discussing what you've been trying to do, you know, speaking of, I guess, cultures that are that are insular, uh, cultures that are uh, able to kind of hide away and don't necessarily interact or overlap with other points of view, uh, with other, you know, cultural movements within societies, specifically on college campuses. But we do see that, especially in the digital sphere, how everything has become so stratified, you know, or stratified. You know, you've got your silos of beliefs, you've got your silos of news. And oftentimes the silos are so far removed from each other that it's almost impossible to have a discourse because we are using different facts, different beliefs, different uh, different cultural icons. So tell me a little bit about what you've been doing with the, uh, it's called the Common Ground Campus Initiative. And the right. work that you've been doing there, and I, I know you had applied this, and I'm not sure if it was just the one case so far, if you've been able to put this out into different college campuses. Right. So I'm, I'm glad that you wanted to have me on to talk about it. So it's, uh, it's a really important program. So Common Ground Campus is something that was created by uh, myself and my partner, uh, Felissa Blazek. And if it weren't for Felissa, it wouldn't have happened, because frankly, it was a loose idea that I had in my head going back over a decade. But, you know, I have my own business consulting practice and I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and I've worked with a lot of startup companies. And I can tell you that most things, most great ideas never actually take place because 
somebody's got the idea. And that's sort of the easy part, believe it or not. And the rest of the work is what where it all falls apart. So I had a loosely formed idea that I was carrying around for 10 plus years and didn't do anything with it. And uh, sometime last year, I mentioned it to Felissa. And the next thing I know, we're at the University of Georgia doing an event. <laughs> so she gets all the credit. It came together this. quickly. <laughs> right. It came together quickly. Exactly. Yeah. So no Felissa, no common ground. So here's what the program is. The program is uh, the idea. We're all familiar with the setting on a college campus where they have a debate. And sometimes the debates between student groups and sometimes they bring in speakers and pay them a ridiculous amount of money. This goes back to, by the way, when I was in college a million years ago, when G. Gordon Liddy and Timothy Leary were traveling around together. You know, you had the former FBI, uh, the great stoic, and you had Timothy Leary, the, the LSD doctor. <laughs> and uh, they became friends because they were adversaries when Libby, Liddy was with the government. They became friends and one would go on stage and, you know, they debate this idea of, you know, the free love and free culture versus, you know, the need for a, a more controlled environment. So, you know, you get the kids walking into the, the auditorium and they walk in with a set of views and they have up on stage people reinforcing their set of views, whichever they are, and then they leave and then they get in a fight in the student commons. So here's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to debate issues. So we'll use a real example of what we did at the University of Georgia. So that was our first event. We've just launched this, right? And so we said to students at the University of Georgia, we want to take on the issue of race on campus. Only we want you to tell us what are the problems with race on the University of Georgia campus. We don't want to tell you. You tell us. And we found students from Turning Point USA on one side and Democracy Matters on the other. And after we had identified issues, we got in a room full of people on a Thursday night and we went up on stage. We had some rules. Uh, nobody was allowed to say you're wrong during the course of the evening. And, you know, we didn't want people to say things like, look, I disagree with you. Uh, we wanted to say, have them say, I see it differently. So little things with language. But what was the mm -hmm. point? The point was for people to say, here's the problem. And then the other person to say on the other side, so why do you think it's a problem? Where are you coming from? What do you think is important about this? Uh, what do you see as a solution? What do you see? Sort of like the Socratic method on mushrooms. <laughs> and so over the course of an hour-long conversation, we took on three issues that the students had identified as race problems on campus. And through discussion, through in you know good interrogatives and answers, we were able to find common ground on all three. And then what we did afterwards, and this was Felissa's idea, not mine. I, I, I didn't really see necessarily the need for it when she, she suggested it, but I said, sure, whatever, it doesn't matter. After the event, instead of sending everybody home or taking questions and answers, we had a pizza party. And the audience and the students and who were involved, we all ate pizza together. And what we heard from the people in the audience was, this was incredible. I've never seen anything like this. This needs to happen on every college campus in the country. Mm -hmm. So today we're fielding requests from schools to do in the fall. We're looking for sponsors for the event. So if anybody in your audience believes in what I'm uh, sharing with you here, you know, uh, we're easy to find uh, commongroundcampus.com and reach out and sponsor one of these events. Last now, point, and I'll or go ahead with a question. I, oh, oh, no, no, I'll, I'll finish with your last point. I'm, I'm jotting down some questions to ask you. I, so please go ahead. What, what I wanted to say is what are we really trying to do here? We've gotten incredibly good in this country at hating people in what I call the third person. 
So we're able to hate the days and the thems. We all know the story of somebody that's on social media and maybe they post, you know, all Bernie Sanders people are communists and they're this and they're that. And then so maybe, you know, you're a Bernie Sanders supporter and it's your friend who's posting this. And you go to your friend and say, hey, you just post all that stuff on Facebook about Sanders supporters. And like, yeah, I did. So, well, you know, I'm a I'm a Sanders supporter. And what does the friend always say? The friend says, well, I didn't mean you. Mm -hmm. So we hate in the third person. And so what we're trying to do is we want to go onto college campuses and we want to personalize the engagement. We want to force people to look other people dead in the eye who don't agree with them, ask them where they're coming from, why the issue matters to them, what they think they should be done. Because it's harder to hate directly when you're looking at somebody right in the eye. And we're not naive enough to think we can go to the, say, the University of Georgia and solve race problems. What we do know is that we can show everybody who's in that room and watches the event that the problems can be solved. So once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Yeah. And so that that's what we're trying to do. Well, what I like, that, especially conceptually, is having the people that are on the campus, having the students on both sides get involved and, as you said, pitch their ideas for solutions. And I'm just thinking there was a recent example, I, I think it might have been at Harvard, actually, pretty sure it was, where there was an autism panel on how to solve you know, problems commonly found with autism and education and, uh, and autistic peoples in the United States and on Harvard's campus. And the event was shut down by protesters in the Harvard student body who said that it was ableist to go and talk about people that had autism because none of the people on stage had autism. So, you know, it was shut down straight off, even though the best intentions were there. And I think by going and saying, okay, we're taking the approach of you are in the student body. You are the ones that are experiencing on campus life. What do you think the solutions are gets around that by putting them in the driver's seat as far as solving their own issues and cuts that, that kind of protest mentality off at the knees. Right. So look, what we're seeing happen in this country with the, and you're right about the scenario you described. What we're seeing happen here is that the id has been unleashed in this country. So uh, Freud reference, I mean, the bottom of my email says to everybody, Hobbes was right. I should add to that. And Freud was writer. Uh, <laughs> Freud really had us in, in what we were. Uh, the it is loose. So in part because it's our nature and in part, I believe, in large part because of social media, uh, we're channeling our brains nowadays to actually just crave hatred. Mm -hmm. We're craving it. And we might have always embraced it. It might be part of our nature. But on the other hand, um, we sublimated it, right? So to no use another Freud term. So we, we repressed it and we had other values and we knew it wasn't right. And there were things that held us back, right? Well, those things are breaking away. We're breaking the chains. And so now if you're a student group and you're on campus and somebody says, you know, we want to talk about ways to help people with autism and you say, wait a minute. So if the people aren't autistic and they're going to be on stage and talk about it, they can't really understand it. So I get to hate them. So I'm going to stop them. Yeah. Right. That's the calculus. And it's not even really a calculus. It's just instinctive. Right. And it's it's an loose. emotional gut reaction. Yeah. Right. And it's loose. And we're not we're not sublimating it and we're not controlling it. And social media encourages it. Right. So, again, we go back to that hate in the third person piece. And uh, 
You know, if you locked one of those protesters at Harvard up in an elevator that broke down with one of the panelists, you might find after an hour in the fire department showing up to break them loose that they stepped off as friends. And you might have that protester saying, yeah, well, maybe this event would be interesting after I talk to you. Right. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people stuck in an elevator, only it's on stage. And, uh, you know, and there's pizza. So, well, that's, and I like the yeah, the pizza party. I jotted down the pizza party aspect too, because there's two aspects of the of the pizza party happening that kind of intrigue me. Number one is I think it's a fantastic idea. Again, getting people to look in the each other in the eye, especially in the digital age, because we know, as you said, hating the third person, the digital divide that's been created among people who now, you know, and so many of the younger generation are socially awkward. Um, I would say that they actively avoid a lot of social situations now where they might have to discuss something eye to eye with somebody where they might have to get into topics and actually have face to face conversations. It's become an uncomfortability factor for them. So Mm -hmm. having them in an event where they're in a shared space and again, pizza, the great uniter, pizza and complaining. Right. right? That's why I look at it. The two two great things people could get behind. But I also on the on the one side, you know, it's great to see that. But. Isn't it shocking and sad to hear them say that this is amazing? I've never experienced anything like this because that does tell you the depth of how they just aren't doing anything where they're speaking outside of this bubble of philosophical thought. Right. Well, yes. I mean, look, it's discouraging, except we're doing it because we know it's needed. So it's expected. And if people were coming up to us and saying, you know, look, this is an entrepreneurial program, right? I mean, we're launching something new, not old. So when people come up to us and say, this is amazing, I've never seen anything like it before. Same thing they were saying, I think, with an iPhone back in, you know, mm-hmm. 2007. So um, we we have the ability, we hope, uh, to really have this then catch on. And we we know that it's necessary. And it's especially then necessary with young people. Uh, well, I, I've told a story on other shows about that event in Georgia and afterwards, you know, we had a real mixed audience of people. We had folks from the community and college students. And there was a dad who had his two uh, high school sons with him and uh, they waited around. I mean, all the pizza was gone and people were mostly leaving. And the father tapped me on the shoulder. He shook my hand. And, you know, he said, I want to introduce you to my two sons and they wanted to speak to you. And so they both shook my hand and they said, you know, thank you, Mr. Hamachek. I'm so glad my dad brought me to this. This was really interesting. I sure wish we could do it on my high school campus. We, we really need this in my school. So here, here's people, you know, I don't even know if the kids were old enough to drive, right? But maybe 16, 17, whatever they were. And they're recognizing this is special. And they're saying, we'd like to have it at our school. Well, this is where we can make a change is if we're able to reach young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know folks are, are, well, hell, you're so much younger than I am, but you know, whether it's your age up to mine and beyond, um, it's hard to reach adults. It's not impossible, but it's hard. And so, um, but with young people, you know, they have something I don't have. They have a future. You know, I've got a past. Oh my God, do I have a past? And then I hope it's very the, checkered. In terms of the future, I just look at my watch and say, what time is it? You know, they <laughs> sort of just have the present moment. But uh, so it's important to do this with young people. And so that's where we're focusing our efforts. 
Well, let me ask you, when you when you started to, to work on this program, how did you come to settle on going to the University of Georgia? Were there other campuses? Was it difficult to get this to get this through? Because we have seen the environment on college campuses, even if you if you bring them an event where you say, look, we're going to have two different sides here. Even that gets shot down half the time or, you know, the the academic brass will reject it because of the fear that the student body will object. So I'm curious to see if you've had any pushback as you're looking to find new homes, if you've been rejected from any schools or if it's been okay, well, we'll let you know and and we'll see. It's a great question. So uh, the idea to do this on a college campus, um, we had been looking at doing this as perhaps an adult program originally. The idea to do it on a college campus uh, actually came to Felissa and I simultaneously just after Thanksgiving of last year. And at that time I said, look, I have a relationship with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. I have one with Turning Point USA. Uh, I was around in the early days of Turning Point. I wrote all their original literature. I wrote Charlie Kirk's first book with them and so on. I said, so why don't I reach out to those two groups and see if either one is interested. And Turning Point USA bit and said, we'd like to do it. And they gave us a list of campuses that they thought would be receptive to the idea to do a first one. Because our goal for the for the spring was just to do one, right? Because to do the first one is a major amount of work. And I say that like I did it, but Felicity did most of the work. I just kind of showed up and moderated the thing. <laughs> but um, so here's the interesting story then. So when they gave us the list of schools, University of Georgia was there. And we said, let's go big. And let's do a school that just won a national championship mm-hmm. and everybody's heard of. So um, the Turning Point student group had a sponsor. You can't do an event on campus without a student group sponsor. Mm -hmm. So they went to the university to approve it. Just like that. Uh, University said, this sounds great. Uh, It's approved. Done. Okay, now we needed a group from the other side to be willing to take on the race issue opposite turning point. Right. And this is, I'm, I'm very interested to hear this because I was going to ask you if that was a challenge as well. It's finding somebody that's Because look, let's be honest, from a, from their perspective, it is a, ideologically, you're talking to the enemy. And we've seen so often these people just refuse. It's like they, you know, they'll, they're worried their peers will cast them down for even oh, discussing it with an opposing viewpoint. You have no idea how much you're going to enjoy my answer. <laughs> So um, uh, you're just going to love this. So I'm not, and I'm not going to name groups um, because our goal here is to work with everyone mm-hmm. and we're trying to bring people together. So I could name the organizations, but I'm not going to, it doesn't matter. I can tell you this, that the first uh, team left group that we approached, um, we had student reps get on a Zoom call, similar to this, right on the computer screen. We laid out what we wanted to do. Uh, they asked a lot of questions it's, they were entitled to. There was a good deal of mistrust because Turning Point was involved. And we all know that Charlie Kirk's a little outspoken, right? And uh, plus, if you Google me, I mean, my history is, you know, I'm pretty outspoken and worked with Turning Point, all those things, right? So they were skeptical. And they said they would bring it back to their group and discuss it on campus. And so they did. And they came back to us. They sent us an email. And they said, here's what um, we're willing to do. And we're willing to do a debate format where each side gets up and they had the whole thing laid out. And I responded, I said, look, uh, thanks, but we didn't come to you looking for a structured program. We have a program. Uh, We want to know if you want to participate. And they said, well, no, not in the format you've, you've provided. And I said, let me make sure I've got this straight. 
you're willing to go up on stage for an hour and argue, yeah. but you're not willing to go up on stage for an hour and try to solve problems. And they said, that's correct. So we had that a swipe would be, left would on just, that group. It would just look too weak. It would, yeah. It gets better. It gets better. So okay. we, we, um, we had a couple of other groups, uh, team left groups on campus that declined to even talk to us that were approached. Mm -hmm. And then we had, a, we finally had the group that came through for us. Uh, Democracy Matters wonderful young man who was running the group on campus, uh, Parth Patel. Uh, by the way, Jack Mallon was the young kid for Turning Point that was running their group. And they were both rock stars, total rock stars. So uh, anyway, Democracy Matters agreed to do it. And we had a couple participants. And we also then had a plan for a bench in case somebody got, you know, China flu or something. Right. But uh, anyway, the night of the event, we show up, you know, a couple hours early to set up the room. I mean, for Felicity to set up the room, I watch, but we're, we're there early with the participants. And uh, I, I just imagine you're just riding around on her back as she's putting the chairs up. And, uh, just, yeah, there's just some some great story. You don't want to get in her way when she's in pre-show <laughs> mode. But um, anyway, so one of the young ladies on the Democracy Matter side had phoned in. She said she wasn't going to participate. Why? Well, because a group of university professors sat down with her that afternoon and convinced her it would be a bad idea. And they convinced her that wow. she was likely being set up for an ambush, that she couldn't trust the program, and that if she went up on stage, she risked, uh, you know, trying to have people make a fool out of her because of her views. Wow. This is, this is what we're up against. And so when the event was over, uh, Parth Patel, the young leader from Democracy Matters, who stepped in himself and sat on the panel uh, because he had to. He came up to me and he said, this was in just a great experience. I'm so glad we participated. I'm so thankful you did this. And I said, I need you to do me a favor. And he said, sure, anything. What? I said, I need you to go back to your group at their next meeting. And I need you to tell them we did exactly what we said we were going to do. And he said, oh, you you got it. I will definitely do that. So, yeah, I think that we're, what we're going to find is that universities are going to sign off on this quickly. But then we're going to face the skepticism and the cynicism from the other side and not trusting us. And the best part is, Brian, is that all somebody has to go do is go to the commongroundcampus.com website and watch what we did at the University of Georgia, because there it is. It's like, yeah. you want proof we're going to play this straight? Watch the video, right? Yeah. You don't have to trust. Don't trust me. Uh, yeah. Just go watch the video, which, by the way, is beautifully done. It's not like a Zoom thing. It's, it looks like a television show. It's really, really well done. I, I just find that I can't. Well, I, I guess I'm not surprised. I, I was going to say I'm surprised to hear that the the teachers and the staff had tried to influence this and try to get the event canceled. But it also makes me wonder because we hear more often than not, about student protests of speakers, of events, of organizations like yours trying to come in and, and speak or hold an event. Right. And now you, I do wonder how many of these student groups are shadow influenced by these people whispering in their ears. You know, again, that's talking about the, oh, uh, the fountainhead, sure. you know, there was the, the great, the great evil editor who had been whispering in everybody's ears in the art world to influence uh, the series of unfolding events. Similarly, you know, one or two, 
academics at these universities that hold positions of power that are, you know, deans of a school or have influential positions over a, a specific department, they, they probably are whispering. They probably are the people that are guiding these students to protest and, you know, to the detriment of all of us. Right. Well, look, uh, and I don't even know that they whisper. I mean, they say it out loud in their classrooms and, yeah. uh, we, we know what's going on in the college campuses. I mean, Turning Point USA was founded to fight back, uh, what's going on on the college campuses. And, and it is an indoctrination piece, but here's, here's what I would love to share with your audience as a way to look at all this. There is a legitimate battle going on in this country between what I will call individualism and collectivism. So there's an active fight that's taking place. There are people out there that legitimately are intent on taking over collective control of our lives. They want to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, if, you're, if you've got a picture of Ayn Rand on your wall, you would call that evil, and I do. And those people are our enemies. They're legitimately enemies, and those are the people that we have to fight back against. But imagine this sort of collectivist thing that we're fighting. Give it a physical shape. Let's turn it into a big obelisk, all right? And at the base, at the foundation, are these people that are deliberately trying to take control of us. But as you fill up that obelisk, because it gets a little bit more narrow at the top, it's filled with people who are part of it, but they're not really engaged. They don't really understand politics. They're, you know, their their thoughts are superficial. They're not fully developed. Uh, they're just regular people who latch onto some ideas and things, but they're not really attached and passionate about it, right? Okay. So how do you topple an obelisk? Well, there's two ways to do it. One is you can push at the base, push back as hard and as fast as you can. And if you can generate enough momentum, you can make it fall. The other way you can do it is you can throw some sort of a grappling hook up around the top of it and you can pull it down towards you. Well, there's a third way, and that's to push and pull at the same time. So what what Common Ground Campus is, Common Ground Campus is the pull. It's trying to bring people in together, hopefully to come out with conclusions and solutions that support individual liberty. But make no mistake, we still have people that we have to push against. So it's the combination of push and pull uh, that gives us this opportunity to hopefully maybe, you know, restore an America where we can fight about, is it objectivism (laughs) or libertarianism? Wouldn't that be a good fight to have? (laughs) That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Well, this is all, I mean, I, I've loved everything I've heard so far. Well, Just you. a quick shift in gears, you yep. know, because I try to make the show, uh, it's it's part politics, I'm trying to do part cultural, I'll part try to uh, keep entertainment. Up. Yeah. yeah, but just oh, that's a, it's a simple thing. You know, we're, I was talking about your posters uh, when we were starting off our interview here. What do you think? Has has there been a film? And I think I'm going to know it. But where do you think the entertainment industry is going? We talked about how there was kind of an attack on the masculine, there, an attack on uh, on the, the man, you know. As you said, the man with a vision, the man who stands for something and kind of tearing this down. Do you think that things are going back the other direction? Well, funny thing, you know, masculinity is uh, seems to be a little bit a part of human nature. And uh, for all the damage it's done over centuries, the only thing that stopped it is revert is is masculinity on the other side. For every aggressor that's attempted to destroy with their masculinity, there's needed to be another masculine man to fight back. So strength meets strength. 
And I do think that our obsession with, um, you know, latte over black coffee, if you will, in terms of you can kind of use that as a metaphor for just about anything, comes from a softness in our life, a softness in our times. We've, you know, um, this these last few generations of Americans post-Vietnam really don't know what war is. We've had some, you know, conflicts overseas that for most people they're very detached from. Mm-hmm. So, so we're soft as a people. So it's easy to sort of embrace these ideas of, you know, I want men with, with pencil thin arms and, you know, um, all, all sorts of gel in their hair and whatever it is. But look at what Maverick did at the box office. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Well, you can't have a more masculine film than that. You just can't. Maybe except for, you know, John Rambo on the back wall. <laughs> right. So these things that are our nature, we we dismiss them and we condemn them because we're intellectually and physically comfortable, right? But when it comes right down to it, the most ardent ass, anti-masculine person you can find, if they find themselves alone in a dark alley and some people walking towards them, right, it's not Woody Allen, they hope, comes around the corner to help them. It's Sylvester Stallone. And that's just because we know that's what we need. And yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, I saw Maverick twice at the theater. Great, great film. Oh, it's awesome. It's so and, good. <laughs> uh, we're in the 40th anniversary year of the release of the original First Blood movie. There's a bit of movie trivia for your audience. Oh, nice. So, so, so go pick up the entire uh, First Blood series and uh, watch them all yeah. and, uh, and celebrate. I love it. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I appreciate you coming on the show. I'm glad we got to connect and uh, it'll be fun to have you on in the future too. And you know, especially love when it. it comes around to something involved with college campuses, I'd love to reach out and have you on for more uh, discussions because the time flew by and uh, yeah, thank you. So everyone, Brent Hamachek again, common ground campus and it's common ground ground campus.com. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Commongroundcampus.com. Check out the site, watch the video, see how special it was, and uh, try to find a way to support us uh, as a sponsor, find us a school, come eat pizza with us. Uh, we are going to, in the fall, our plan is not to pick the issue that we want to talk about. It's to have the campus pick the issue. We mm-hmm. want a student group to say, hey, here's the problem on our campus, because what we're doing is a process dressed up as an event. So we can take on any issue that is really a problem on campus, bring the sides in and put them through this exercise. And so we wanna say, what's the problem on your campus? Tell us, we don't wanna tell you, tell us. And let's come and address it. And then let's eat pizza. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely fantastic. All right, so make sure to check that out. And again, any of you out there that want to sponsor, get in touch with Brent. If you are a, uh, a collegiate uh, scholar and you want to have them on your campus, get in touch. A fantastic program. Brent, thanks again. And uh, I will take us out here. So, guys, again, thank you for joining me on Mean Age Daydream. And thanks to Brent. Oh, my background's messed up. Terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, thanks to Brent Hamachek for joining me on the show. Thank you all for listening. Again, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com. Get all our bonus content, extra interviews, my uh, my bonus morning shows, and all that good stuff. Otherwise, for me, 
Brian McWilliams from the Lions of Liberty Network and Mean Age Daydream. Keep those electric eyes on me, babe, and keep that ray gun to my head.